The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My paternal grandmother, when she was dying, like literally just white in the bag of bones, and I was five at the time, she knew that it was the last time that she would see her grandchildren and she just wanted to touch our hands. I was so scared. I didn't recognize my grandmother that I didn't leave the door frame. And my dad was trying to pull me over to her because he wants his mother to, you know, have this experience for the last time. And um, she saw how terrified I was and um, that I was on the brink of tears. So she just said, you know, just leave her. And I never got to touch my grandmother's hands for that last time. And that was something that I regretted a lot and something that I questioned. My name is Carol Nguyen. I am a filmmaker, born and raised in Toronto, based in Montreal now. I guess my most notable film to date is a film, a short documentary called No Crying at the Dinner Table. Um, it had a very generous festival run. My next short film is called Nanitic. It will be premiering at TIFF this September. Um, and then currently I'm working on other projects, um, like a short animation, a feature documentary, and currently in the very early stages of writing a feature fiction. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you for coming on to The Vietnamese Podcast today. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Um, that's a very difficult question, and <laughs> I don't know necessarily how to answer this because I feel like there's a differentiation between, um, you know, Vietnamese people who live in Vietnam versus Vietnamese of the diaspora. Um, <clears throat> I think the sole connector of all Vietnamese people is this sense of collectivism and community, and in some ways, um, spirituality and whatever that means to you. I think that the Vietnamese culture is very spiritual and rooted in um, different, different um, I think like dimensions and according to death. Um, maybe it's because the last time I went to Vietnam, I was exploring this um, aspect of death and death rituals. And I found so many ghost stories and so many superstitions that um, somehow, whether you believed it or not, it like affected everyone's life. And I found that like I was raised around this aura of, of ghosts, of superstitions, of, you know, what, what have you as well. Um, however, I think that, you know, being first and second generation Vietnamese is very different. Um, especially it, it also depends on like what country you live in. I think in North America, it's very different than Vietnamese people in Europe and um, Vietnamese people abroad in other countries as well. So it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, and I think it's an ever evolving question because what I thought it meant to be Vietnamese before I went to Vietnam changed significantly to after I visited the country. And, you know, it keeps on changing as I um, have a different relationship with my parents, as 
I um, have a different relationship with the language as I lose my language, as I relearn it again. Um, so it's complicated, <laughs> but it's not something I think about on a regular basis. <laughs> Yes, indeed, it, it's complicated, and yeah, we we don't really think about it until we're you're sort of like it's ass, right? Like you're you're like, yeah, I'm I'm a human being, I bleed blood, but there's other things that are um, that are pushing us to kind of think in certain uh, constraints. Now, when do you think that you've sort of recognized that? Um, I mean, did you at all recognize that? You know, growing up, there was this other country that was separated from where you were growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, like my parents talked about Vietnam all the time. So I had always wanted to go to Vietnam and they um, intentionally did not want to go back. Um, even when I feel like they were able to like financially, they just never chose to go back for um, their own personal reasons. And so that had always bothered me because I'm like, I want to know my roots. I want to understand this country where all these stories are coming from. Um, so I was very aware that, you know, I had roots in another country that I don't necessarily know. Um, and I feel like growing up, not having visited your motherland, you start to create these stories of like what this country is. And you kind of construct with the stories that your parents give you this kind of rose tinted glasses look of that country um which is not necessarily tangible because it's not real but it's it's like this myth that you build so i i lived with that myth for a very long time yeah and it shows up in your work uh and that's why i asked that question because you know i can see the 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 questioning the the thoughts um you know kind of marinating in the the way that uh your stories kind of unfold um, to, to some to some extent. Now, why do you think, um, actually not why, but what do you think that your parents um, finally sort of felt when you decided to go to Vietnam and, and kind of work um, around this idea of, you know, Vietnamese culture? Um, <laughs> so the first time I went to Vietnam was not too long ago, it was in 2019, right before the pandemic, and that was your from first October, time. first time, yeah, I was 21. Um, my short animation is about this experience, actually, so um, I, I can kind of tease it as well, but it was for a study abroad exchange, so it was from October to January, literally right before they closed the borders to Vietnam, um, so I experienced the country um, in kind of this like illusion that I'm going for academic purposes, but really I just wanted to go for the sake of it. And when I saw that my school had an exchange with a school in Vietnam, I was just like, yep, <laughs> no thought I'm going to do it. Um, but you know, that decision led to the biggest fight that I've ever had with my mom. And I think she couldn't understand why I wanted to go back. And, um, you know, she had traumas herself that I feel like um, kept the country from, um, from, from her not understanding that the country has evolved since she was last in Vietnam and, um, you know, concerns with safety, concerns with, you know, all these things that, of course, mothers should be concerned about. Um, but at the end of the day, I was just like, I have to go. <laughs> Um, and I took the decision to go and, um, 
it was one of the best experiences mm-hmm. for me. I, it was also um, a huge identity crisis. I was very confused. Um, I had a moment where I was in Hanoi and I was just like in the alleyway. And I, all of a sudden I stopped in the middle of the street and I was like crying to myself. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a very interesting experience and a big growth, ex- uh, a big growth journey, but it was something that I had to fight for, I felt. Um, and I feel like after doing it that one time, you know, my parents kind of understood better of like, you know, my desires to explore and, and bringing back pictures and coming back alive. And in one piece, they're like, you know, we understand that the the country has grown since then. Your, your father and mother, like, I, I don't mean to pry, but like, what is their biggest beef with you going back to Vietnam and well, other than the safety <laughs> and all that, but what is their sort of like their main reason for not wanting to really associate with Vietnam right now? Um, I think uh, a lot of emotional memories, um, maybe some that they haven't told me about. And I think also political reasons. Um, When I was in Vietnam the last time, which was a couple months ago, I got invited to my mom's university friends like uh, reunion. And, you know, uh, she had friends who were grandpas now, friends who became teachers, friends who live in very lavish mansions and lavish lives. And a part of me was just like, I wonder what my mom's life would have been like yeah. if she had stayed in Vietnam. And and then I and so I asked her, I was like, do you regret leaving? And do you regret not having, you know, this community and potentially have all these friends and remain, um, have sort of, some of your dream remain intact of like becoming a teacher because she's not in Canada. And and she said, no, because she felt like um, as a person, there are things that the politics won't allow her to be 100% and express a hundred percent. And and that's what she said she valued more, but of course there's, it's, it's very complex because yeah. you don't know what it would have been like if she'd stayed. So I think, at some point, you know, when we make big transitions and decisions in our, in our life, we we stick with it and we have to um, not convince ourselves, but we have to understand that the narrative that we're creating right now is the better narrative because, you know, you don't want to think about the what ifs. And, and of course, if she didn't go, she wouldn't have had me, which obviously <laughs> a blessing to this world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now I know where you get the fighting spirit from. You know, uh, your answer about your mother uh, really shows that uh, it influences the way, you know, the way you think about the world and how, you know, you fight for the right to express because that might not have happened had she grown up in Vietnam mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. So I don't know, but, you know, you can only imagine. Yeah. Now, how did your family uh, arrive in Canada and what year? Why the decision to go to Canada? Um, So my parents went separately and then they met in Canada as like a preface. My dad left in, my dad tried escaping three times. So once in the late 70s and then in the early 80s and then early 80s again. He was jailed the first time um, because he was caught. And then the second time he was caught again, but then he ran away before the 
prisoners like took him in prison something like that yeah. and then the third time he left and he fled to um galang island which i think is an island in cambodia <clears throat> and um and so he was on the island for i think a year and he wanted to go to the states but there was such a huge lineup for the states mm. that when a spot opened for canada he's like next door neighbor probably the same country so then he took the chances and went to canada um the same thing i think very similarly happened for my uncles um on my paternal uh, on my maternal side um so my mom didn't flee uh by boat she was sponsored over my uncles were boat people and then um they you know made enough money over the two three years they were there to sponsor the rest of their family over and my mom came in the mid 80s i think mid or late yeah something like that so they met in canada yeah they met in canada got it got it now um when you were growing up in canada um were there people that influenced you in the arts or storytelling in your family or church or or temple um when I was young, I never really paid attention to that. But looking back, um, I feel like my parents are both such great storytellers. Like they're great oral storytellers, like the bedtime stories they would tell. Just even talking about their past, like there was always um, a lot of passion and emotion in what they chose to tell. And, and they didn't, especially my dad, they didn't tell many stories. But when they did, it was extremely intriguing. Um, but other than that, like my sister was very artistic. She's a painter. She's a, a, a ceramicist as well. And she was always dabbling in the arts. But for me, I, I just had like piano. I played trumpet at one point. I didn't even know what a director was. Like I, <laughs> I was watching like Shrek. I love like Ella Enchanted, you know, she's the man, very typical, like um, teenage movies. So I didn't even know that filmmaking was a thing until i went to high school and then there was a film program and i'm like whoa what is this wow. and and then fell in love with it then but like <laughs> i remember like going into that program and they're talking about all these classics like um scorsese and you know these people i'm like who the hell is that who's this old white short man <laughs> never heard of him <laughs> shrek i know shrek though <laughs> Uh, did what? What year did you make uh, "No Crying" um, at the dinner table? That was uh, so we filmed it in two thousand eighteen, and it was released two thousand and nineteen. That was um, my thesis film in university. Okay, I asked that question because I'm like, that argument that you have with your mother about going to Vietnam happened after you made that film. Yeah, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself shouldn't she know better like after that whole your, your <laughs> the strength to make a movie like that and and to put out a project that strong versus the decision to go to vietnam alone and to explore i would think that like that argument happened before you made the movie not after and i you know it blows my mind that yeah well you know people people think that people are like oh you know you're so brave but and your, your parents are so brave but to my parents it was just like okay you asked me this question i'm just going to answer it right <laughs> it wasn't like a a huge to them it didn't seem like an act of courage to them it was just um 
they've been so involved with my film since I was 15 that it wasn't out of the ordinary for um, for them to help me. And of course, this was like the biggest way that they've ever collaborated and, and they were um, very open and willing to tell their story, but um, it didn't seem special to them what they were doing. Like my parents in the beginning, they didn't even understand why I wanted to hear their story because they're just like, I don't know, I just never kissed my mom before like what's special about that like all of Vietnam has never kissed their mom you know (laughs) and like when I take no crying back to my uh, my aunties like it's the same thing they're just like what's why did this film win so many awards right (laughs) so like I think um it was an act of courage on behalf of my whole family and for us to take this commitment to do this project together but like individually they're just like okay you want me to talk about this like uh, I will and and it wasn't um I think because I had built a relationship with my family as a director and my family with the camera for so long since then um it was very natural for them yeah and uh you know the just the sort of if I've my daughter made a film like that, I would be like, you want to go to Africa? You want to go wherever you want to go? (laughs) Here's some money, you know, like I fully trust that you can handle your own because the thought and the layers and and it's funny how disconnected the older generation is when they when they see a film like No Crying, right? It's like, yeah, that it doesn't really pertain to them as much as it does the kids, the second, third generation diaspora kids that, you know, we we go through these things that it's hard for them to kind of relate to. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you know, there's um there's a book written by Laksu, um, he's like my age, probably almost fifty, uh, called um uh, I Love Yous are for white people. Oh, and, interesting. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty big book when it came out. It came out I think maybe ten years ago. Um so it is a it is a big phenomenon that, you know, we don't you know, we don't engage in the same way we show love uh, as, you know, our Western counterparts, right? Yeah. But actually, after No Crying, we started saying I love you to each other. So not my dad, though. Still work in progress. (laughs) So interesting. Who started that? You or or your mom? I can't even remember. I think it started as a text um, because it was a lot easier to send texts. Because like me and my sister and my mom, we have a group chat. Um, My dad doesn't have an iPhone, so (laughs) he misses the the iMessages. but it started as text and then slowly, I think it was like me and my sister that started it. And then my mom reciprocated it on the phone. And now it's said out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Is it still awkward? No, not anymore. At first it was just like, like, you know, the words are like trying to, like, I've never said this before. And they're peeling off of my tongue very awkwardly, but it's natural now. You know, there's something to be said about the quiet love that Vietnamese parents have, right? Um, that's that's like a new thing in my generation to accept and, and cherish and celebrate is this sort of, okay, well, they don't do I love yous and I love yous are for white people, but we have this other, you know, form of um, of love. And uh, both are, are, are valuable, both are, you know, um, special. Um, having it said out loud is, is a wonderful thing, but also the little things that they do is, is also a, a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. This, um, I think my parents and, and a lot of um, people, Vietnamese people, had this, uh, this thing of sniff kissing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I never understood that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of representative of the quiet love that Vietnamese people have. It's like we don't want to kiss out loud. We don't want to smack our, our, our babies with this loud thing. It's just sort of this quiet sniff and it's ingesting their essence, you know, their smell into our our bodies, right? Good. Mm -hmm. And and it, it produces uh, all of these wonderful um, chemicals, uh, you know, from parent to child and child to parent, uh, and and it's a it's a wonderful un, unsp under um, it's unspoken and it's quiet, and I think it's it's very representative of the Vietnamese culture. Yeah, I forgot about the sniff kisses. I think they fade out with age, right? Yeah, they do. They yeah, because I don't think my parents do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think is a um, so I've had I had two kids and we were going through um, these baby uh, on our first my wife's and I first uh, our daughter uh, we were going through a class of breastfeeding um, from this local um, like YMCA or whatever uh, and they said that there's a chemical that's released for the parents and for the child when you um, are close to each other. There's a certain God. I can't remember the 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 scientific uh, word for it, but it it gives you this boost of um, happiness, and you know, it's like kind of like how mm. serotonin is for sleep and all of this stuff. It releases this uh, chemical that makes you um, that that gives you a, a certain boost um, emotionally. I suspect that at a certain age that that smell or that odor or whatever that pheromone gives off of the baby gives off is gone. Mm. I think that we don't go, we don't need to go near it uh, anymore because once the baby hits five years old, seven years old, it just kind of dissipates and you don't get the same um, kick or high from sniffing your baby. Mm. That's just my, my, my guess um, as I'm going through, um, my children and I'm like I'm I'm paying attention to when it wears out because I'm I'm very aware that it go it goes away. My mom doesn't sniff kiss me either. <laughs> yeah. And your daughter is how old? She's five, and he's three, and and so I'm trying to find out like where the sniff kisses will start to drop off. Mm. Yeah, and I don't think it's a socially uh, appropriate or inappropriate. Uh, uh, conversation. I think it's more of a biological conversation where it, you know, that chemical uh, just kind of fades out and you just don't get the same high um, mm -hmm. as they described in that um, breastfeeding uh, class that, that these people, it got, it's, it's a, it's, it's a certain word that it's, um, I, I, I can't remember the, the, the name of the, I'm put on the spot right now. I can't remember what, what you get from smelling your baby scent but it goes away it definitely goes away at a certain point yeah i i think i understand but also not just between parents and child i feel like just babies and children smell better in general like i don't <laughs> that sounds so creepy i'm not it's like they just <laughs> like it doesn't sound cute for you okay it sounds okay for me okay 
<laughs> if I was to say that, it would sound really creepy. Uh, not my kids, but I like to... For you, it sounds perfectly... Appropriate. I don't sniff children, though, but like... It's, it's, I think it's just like a given that adults and people who have gone through puberty and have body odor, just they don't have that same... I don't know, whatever you call it is. Yeah, yeah it's pher pheromones. Um, yeah, pheromones, exactly. Yeah, this is a very particular uh, word. Um, I, I keep confusing oxycotton, oxycodone. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. Or it's the opposite of cortisol, right? Right. It's right. like the stress of a hormone. It's the opposite of that. So, but yeah, it's something that's released that we get this cert this high from from being around our, our babies. Mm. Yeah. When you were going to high school, what made you gravitate? What do you think made you gravitate to the film program in high school? Um, very simply, um, it was one of so the school was one of the best academic high schools um, at the time in Toronto, based off of some ranking system. And my sister went to it, so she really loved it. And um, I didn't know what to audition for. The only thing I, I knew, because you had to audition within mm -hmm. an art um, skill. So the only thing I knew how to do at the time was play the trumpet. So I was going to do that. And then my sister's like, oh, I really love this teacher and he teaches film. Maybe you should audition for film as well because you can audition for two things. So I was like, okay, why not? Um, the film program was the only thing that you didn't need to have prior training for. So that was perfect because <clears throat> I couldn't dance, I couldn't act, I didn't know how to draw. Um, so I don't remember which order I chose, but when I sat down for my band audition, and I'm so bad at doing things live, my lips were trembling that when I tried to play the trumpet, like nothing came out. So literally after five seconds, they're like, okay, let's just skip to the interview, you know? <laughs> so I knew I didn't get into band immediately. Um, so I did the film audition and the film audition was like, I remember we were in a room and we were supposed to analyze a film. Um, and I don't think I did very well because later in my life, after I had graduated, my teacher told me that they almost didn't pick me for the program. Um, so my life would have been very different if I didn't um, go to that school and enter that program. Um, but because I was selected, I went through um, various teachers in the film program who were just super passionate about cinema and not just cinema, but personal storytelling. Um, so unlike many other film programs, even in university that you would think of where you learn, you know, the skill and then you make a movie and the three act structure and very theoretical stuff. The program was more centered around like, what story do you want to tell? Why? Why does it matter to you? Um, and why should it, should everyone else care? Um, and as a teenager, you know, you, I feel like what they did really well was they didn't minimize your problems, whatever that was, and they made you feel like your story was important and, and it deserved to be told. <clears throat> um, one exercise that I remember uh, that they made us do was to list in a grid three people who are the most important people in your life three memories, three objects, and three like ideas or ideologies. And then, um, and then choose like what out of all these things impact you the most in your life. 
And for me at the time, it was a memory of like a traumatic experience that I had um, a few years prior to that. And I just, I couldn't like talk about it. I just pointed to it. And then he's like, okay, maybe that's something you should explore and make a film on. And so from that, it was like this huge healing journey of like dissecting why this memory was so important to me, how to tell a story from it and why to even make a story out of this experience. Um, And also, you know, what does this experience mean? Because I can't be the only one who has felt this, right? So it made me understand that um, my individual experience in the world can be universal if I'm able to understand it and perceive it in that way. Um, And then that was like my foundation for cinema. And then, you know, it kind of built up on that. So I I started not in a very theoretical space. It was a lot more personal and um, philosophical in a way. And it's all thanks to those film teachers. Your life could have been very different had you been a better trumpet player. Yeah. (laughs) I wish it's so embarrassing. (laughs) That's the comedy of life. If you, you know, it's like, if you ponder on it, it's like how, how absurd it is that if you're trumpet or if you're a violin player and you're really good at it, um, but you go through high school at this place and you know, they really foster that, but then you go out and you become an engineer. That whole filmmaking journey is completely like vanishes, not never happens, but this happened because you know, you, you could you, you choked on the audition basically and and it steered your life into a totally different um stratosphere yeah i mean i could have easily been like a an entrepreneur or a teacher or whatever um and and i don't think i would have thought about being a director if it wasn't for that program wow and then you get to college and do you um punch it up a few notches up with the with film Uh, yes yeah so then from there i knew i wanted to be a filmmaker and i just went to university and um, took um, a bachelor's in fine arts in the film production program and um there is where i really learned like the theoretical and the technical aspect of like how do i even like work a camera how do i work with the team um what is a first assistant director things like that Um, but like high school was very like working by yourself kind of a thing. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials to participate. Simply fill up an orange hefty renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know, making a movie uh, at any scale is a very difficult and, you know, group collaborative process. And there's so many moving parts. And at so many given times, it's like it's exhausting managing all of it. And then finally getting something out that you can cut up and, and, and piece together to polish. You know, what gives you that? drive and that energy to to really follow through and and make it complete and and polished at the end of the day 
Mm, I mean, it's a tough question. And I think it's a question for all filmmakers yeah. because the process can be very lonely at some times and very strenuous. Sometimes you're just waiting for something, yeah. waiting for finance, waiting for an answer for someone to collaborate with you. Um, there's just a lot of waiting. <laughs> um, so for me, I think I consider myself someone who enjoys making films more than watching films. Mm. And I think the process of it um, is really being able to give structure to an idea and give meaning to um, things that would not regularly be associated with meaning in real life. Like, you know, thinking about the art direction and how does that impact a feeling, thinking about the framing and um, how that gives meaning to your themes. Um, and, and being able to universalize things. Um, and I think like a big part of me, what I think my philosophy is, is that, you know, there's, there's no, even if you have bad experiences, that doesn't mean that you can, that it's not a beautiful story. Like you can make a beautiful story out of anything. And because of that, it's just the way that you frame your experiences, frame life frame, um, the way that you word things as well. And so I want to be able to make my experiences, make um, certain stories that I think are important, universal and bring that to the screen. Um, and of course, like I just enjoy the process a lot. I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy that filmmaking is um, a project-based kind of job and I'm not sitting at a desk nine to five and um, I thrive off of things that um, have different steps and different requirements from you in terms of skills so yeah I just I, I don't know I just love making film <laughs> such a I don't know easy answer or should be deeper but yeah no I mean it's basic and you know to to do what you love is a uh, kind of a luxury in life and to know it early on, you know, like a lot of people don't figure it out what they need to be doing or what they, what drives them until very late in life. And there's a beauty to that too, because I'm experiencing that in my life, you know? Um, so I used to really be jealous of people like you or my brother, you know, figure, you know, he's an animator and he got into drawing very early in his life and pursued it. And you, you know, hearing your story, I didn't get started till in my 40s. I kind of wandered and, and did so many things. and But it all is brought together at the end. You know, it, uh, it all accumulates into something. And, you know, so if you're an early bloomer in your career or a late bloomer, I think it all, it's all cosmically makes sense in, in the end to me. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the awards that are won when a filmmaker puts out something really good, I have been around this long enough to see how it changes your life uh, in, in, in ways of access or funding and, and all of that. Um, how has it, how do you think it's changed your predicament as a filmmaker? My predicament as in like the way that I... Your access, your, you know, your ability to make the next thing and, you know, right. has it, have, have you seen it really open up different type of doors that you weren't... Um, that you didn't think about before? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, not just the awards, but I think um, No Crying had a very generous festival circuit. Um, <clears throat> I think the biggest award that we won, we won like many small awards, but the biggest one was the best documentary, uh, short documentary jury award at South by Southwest. Um, and it was a strange year because it was the pandemic. So like when I had figured out that I won, it was just me alone in my apartment. <laughs> And it was like just posted on an article versus like other years, it was a lot more celebratory. So I don't know how um, a non-pandemic festival run would have changed the outcome of my career versus now. Um, so I think my situation is very like pandemic specific, but because it was the pandemic and the film was able to go online and like um, become more accessible yeah. to people who were at home, I think that, um, it allowed a lot of eyes to be on us. Um, we also did a, an Oscars campaign, which we had like a publicity team on and we did a big push with like screenings and we had filmmakers come up to do talkbacks with, like I was talking with Bao, for instance, I was talking to Lulu Wong at one point, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And that brought a lot of, um, I guess, eyes onto me and my film and, and that, obviously helps because people know who you are now and you have a shiny thing to put on your cv you know south by southwest jury award winner whatever um so I, it opens a lot of doors um i think it makes you uh more known to people who are in the industry um i don't know if it's the film itself or the awards i don't think like awards just open those doors right away. But I think it was the journey of the film, maybe uh, the film itself that also allowed a lot of producers to knock on my door um, and then help me develop my next films. So, so yeah, I was very lucky, yeah. Yeah, very fortunate indeed. As I follow your work specifically, uh, you, I, I think that it's not enough to just be a good filmmaker. You know, a lot of people probably can make good films, but there's other, I think, that have led you to be where you are today. And um, I don't know what it is, but there's a magic to just not being a good filmmaker. It's, there's more to it than that. Am I wrong in that assessment? Or do you think that you can add to the idea of it's just not making good films? It's more than that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you can say that about anything. I think the biggest thing, first and foremost, is don't be an asshole. <laughs> Um, like there are so many people who are good at what they do, but you know, they're assholes and no one wants to work with them or I wasn't um, expecting that Carol <laughs> or, or maybe, um, people who, um, don't, don't thrive to grow or to be better. And I think that the reason that I enjoy what I do as well is because I surround myself and I have a great people, um, who want to be there, who want to be better, who want to um, make it work and make that collaboration happen. Um, I think that sometimes, um, sometimes when you don't find the right people, it can be very difficult to enjoy the process and even be proud of what you've made because a part of like filmmaking is so long, like the end product is the only thing you see, but it's like years in the making. Um, before that so I think 
when you're genuinely kind, curious, when you enjoy working with the people that you're surrounded with, um, it helps everyone grow who is on that horizon with you. Um, obviously, like hard work is very um, necessary and in in a field where there's no path um, unlike uh, you know being a doctor or an engineer I don't really know what like my next year looks like right I don't I'm not employed by someone I have to really work hard and hustle and look for, for the opportunities myself and I think that that active digging and not just sitting there for things to come to you because things will come to you but you just don't know when and you have to plant those seeds for yourself so you can thank yourself in the future. Um, that's a huge part of it as well. Um, and I don't think I'm the most talented filmmaker. I don't think I'm the best storyteller. Um, I think there are many people who are great storytellers, but perhaps they don't um, have the other aspects that you know they're able to set themselves up for uh, certain opportunities in the future. Like some people, um, if, they were paired with a manager, I think they would thrive really well. Yeah. That, that's what I'm talking about. You know, when I look at your work and I look at what you've done in such a short amount of time, that's, that's what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying is. Yeah. Sorry, I have one more thing. Cause I don't think um, it's only the individual. Also, I think it depends on the environment that you live in and like the, the institutions that surround you. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, I feel like if I had lived in the States, I don't know if I would have been the filmmaker I am today because a lot of my films are supported by public funds. A lot of my films um, and my experiences have been, um, have been thri have thrived because I've been a part of like fellowships, mentorships, and things that have um, provided me with the skills that I have today. Um, also, you know, uh, I guess like the, the independent film scene in Quebec has really helped me find my footing. Um, I don't know how someone like me in my emerging stages of my career would do in a place like the States where it's very competitive. There's no public funds. Um, it's largely based on like investments and like who, you know, like I, so, you know, it's of course hard work, a little bit of luck, a little bit of charm, a little bit of, you know, everything, but also, I didn't choose to be born where I was born, yeah. right? So I'm very lucky with that as well. You, you bring up terrific points that uh, I didn't even think about. But I just know, like looking at, you know, the landscape and I'm just like, there's nobody like you because you're a young uh, woman who has gone very far um, on the festival circuit and you know, the body of work is just very, it's, it's quality driven and they're really good. And there's this other layer of success. So you're right. Don't be an asshole is number one. And then being born wherever you were born into an environment that has this infrastructure to support the artistry that, that, that you've come into. It's a huge, yeah. Because yeah. right. in the United States, we don't, you're going to go intern at some bullshit production company for years, move up as a development exec or whatever, or, you know, there's, you're not at your age getting to get money, hands on equipment and, and go out and make a movie. And that's a, a really big tell. Um, you know, and not only that, but like, for instance, I was a part of um, a workshop in Amsterdam this summer 
um, a documentary workshop. And there was, there was me, and then there was a girl who um, is Vietnamese, uh, born and lives in Vietnam. And like our circumstances for how our production can thrive and how, like what's possible even, was totally different. You know, what we can talk about, the budget that we had to do things, the skilled workers that we have around us, and also how much we had to bend ourselves yeah. to get our films made. And that was really astounding to me. Night and day. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. You know, I, I really do appreciate that answer because, um, you know, sometimes we look at and we compare our lives to people around us and people in our same, we think, sphere. But the circumstances of the person or the artist developing are very different. And we sometimes mm -hmm. don't think about it. The nuances of like what they're given and what kind of opportunity or lack of opportunity uh, created their form of storytelling or music or art. Yeah, and I have like a lot of young people ask me for advice all the time. Like sometimes you have like Zoom copies and stuff like that. And they're like, like, how did you do this? And I'm like, well, I had project funds at my university or I had um, provincial or governmental funds that I could apply to. Like I, I can give you advice, but like it's not based on your circumstances, you know, where, whereas you live in Seattle or something like that. And I, it's, it's hard. Like, yeah. Yeah. Truly, truly blessed. What other art forms other than trumpet playing? Ah, <laughs> uh, I am. I'm a pole dancer. That's an art form. Yes, definitely. What got you into that? Um, the first time I was in Vietnam, I saw my friend pole dance. Wow, and... How ironic! You got <laughs> from from Vietnam. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And in Vietnam, everything is cheap. So I'm like, if I'm gonna try something new anywhere, it's gonna be Vietnam. And then I fell in love with it. Um, it made me find my self confidence, and it, I like I always loved dance, so it was the perfect art form, I guess. <laughs> no, it, for me, when I look at it, it just seems so dangerous because of like if you slip you could really hurt yourself like if you're upside down and the grips are like off of a slippery pole and it just feels very dangerous to watch is it yeah you have like hand grip it's kind of like it's called dry hands it's kind of like chalk when you rock climb but i have fallen multiple times and like once i fell on my back in fetal position oh my god yeah and then that gave me like chronic pain for like 3 years <laughs> i'm good now but it it can be dangerous if you don't have the proper training but once you do, it's really like you just got to trust your body and understand that the grips that you do are like they might be scary, but they're the they're grips for a reason. So, yeah, it's amazing. You should try it. Yeah, I, I look at I just I'm not really inclined for danger, like dangerous sports. <laughs> I, and I look at pole dancing. I mean, even like if, you know, when I was coming up in, in, in my life, you know, going to the strip clubs, I couldn't get my mind off of how dangerous that stuff looked, you know, like the, the act of it, um, no matter how sexualized it is, it, it was just so I couldn't remove, extricate myself from the danger of, 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 you know, the moves that I was witnessing, you know, and, and so you're like, I should try it. I'm like, I enjoy snowboarding very much and I still can't bring myself to that's to me more safe than like snowboarding pulling. is more dangerous yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, I'm sure. I'm just like 
playing around. You're moving downhill at like 15 miles an hour. I don't know how fast, but that to me is like you can run into a tree. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, do you pick up um, uh, pole dancing in uh, Canada? Is it uh, widely accessible for you? Yeah, yeah. I have a studio, and I go about like once a week. So, okay. yeah, I practice regularly. That's amazing. maybe one day I'll do competitions, but not yet. We're not good enough. Is there any documentary on pole dancing and that whole niche? I'm sure there is, um, and maybe someone's working on that right now because pole dancing as a sport um, and as an acrobatic um, thing has really risen the past few years, from what I've seen. So I'm sure someone's going to do it. I would love to do one um, if someone wants me to direct it for them. There's a producer out there. <laughs> Just putting it out there. That would be a dope documentary because I think that um, there are revolutions in every sport that you see. You know, every period it could be you know two years, nine years, ten years that a sport will go through a, a revolution. Some young person will bring like a whole different vibe to the table and elevate the sport and bring it to another another heights and i wonder you know how much development more is there in pole dancing you know from where it is right now right because some superstar is going to come onto the scene and then just blow it up uh to the next level yeah i mean it's already happening um i think like the the one thing that's made it big is kind of the shift in society where people aren't sexualizing pole dancing as they used to anymore and then you know you see things like um FK Twigs, she did her music video, and people see it more as an art form and an acrobatic experience than than just something for the clubs. And of course, we have to; it, it's rooted from that, so um, it will always have that association. And there is pole dancing in heels. If you want to be sexy, you can make it sexy. But there's just this understanding that it doesn't have to be just one thing now. Right. I think that's what has made it blown up. And, and there's another side to that conversation about sexualizing things too, which I've recently learned in in a very difficult way. But you know, now I'm starting to see it and and kind of get get a grip on the landscape of of this idea of sexual positivity. Right? It's like you can even sexualize pole dancing. That's fine, and you just have to have a a very positive, uh, no judgment on the actual sexuality of pole dancing, and that's fine too. Right? Yeah, I mean, if like, if I want to put that energy out there, mm -hmm. that's fine too. Like, I sometimes it's what um, is the fun of it? It's to perform. It's to put on a character. It's to feel a certain energy that maybe you can't off the stage. Um, and like, you can say the same thing for men, right? Like, if a man wants to feel and look like a snack, then then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, and i think what a wonderful world we we live in um today you know it's just the freedom and the the positivity and i'm you know i'm i'm a dinosaur when it comes to this sort of like this new understanding of the world i'm, I'm beginning to see so many of my past comments are were bad they're just judgy and they they and it's not just in the sexual realm but it's just you know all of the things that we don't 
examine, you know, in this new time where it's like our legacy is really just the words we put out sometimes. Yeah, I think um, some people from the older generation think that, especially for women, like if you're sexy, you can't be anything else. Yeah. Or if you, you know, categorize women in different ways. But if you can be, if you're sexy, you can still be a nerd. You can still, you know, be a pole dancing filmmaker. Um, there are so many dimensions to just, you know, anything that you can't just stereotype um, women based on what you see and, and, and fit into the box of yours. Yeah. Do you follow what Vietnamese filmmakers are doing throughout the world? Yes, of course. I feel like we're so interconnected nowadays with social media that we're all kind of following each other. This is always a tricky question because I don't want to exclude any Vietnamese filmmakers, but who are some of the people that you you follow and you kind of study in the Vietnamese world? Ooh, I don't I don't really study anyone, <laughs> but I um, follow very closely a lot of filmmakers. Um, the first person that comes to mind because I recently met him in person for the first time is Andrew Trung um, and Jeannie Nguyen. They so. Andrew, I don't have you heard of them? No, I've I've have not heard of either one of them. They're young filmmakers. The young filmmakers, um, Junie is like working on a series right now, and she did a bunch of amazing short films called like Saigon or Saigon and um First Generation. And then Andrew is a cinematographer and he shoots amazing stuff. Um and and I think they were really one of the first two filmmakers that um, I discovered and I was like, whoa, there's amazing Vietnamese filmmakers out there and um, I'm really inspired and they're telling great stories and, um, and, and yeah, so I follow them very closely. Uh, obviously, Mao is great. Um, I met him for the first time as well a couple months ago. Um, I, I think a lot of the Vietnamese filmmakers that I follow are from the States because there's not many Vietnamese filmmakers in Canada and or in Europe from what I know. Yeah. Um, and, and also um, recently I connected with the Vietnamese film industry in Vietnam, although it's very different because it's more of like commercial films and music right. videos than like independent films. And there are independent filmmakers. It's just like, we're very they're very sparse in vietnam and i think soon momentum is going to pick up and they're going to really grow and kick off but um with the circumstances right now it's just a lot harder yeah yeah i, I think you hit the nail on the head with the soon it's going to be a totally different landscape with film production in vietnam people um with your skill set will be in high demand uh, in a few short years I don't think we're very far behind Korea. I, I'd hope so. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that being said, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I say it, hopefully, you know, that's, that's my hope for Vietnam, but you know, there's still a lot of issues like censorship and, you know, skilled workers in, in the business. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that obviously will, will, will need to, to kind of come up and improve. But at the same time, I think the, the will and the young force, you know, young energetic uh, workforce in Vietnam. Um, a lot of people are very hungry to make really good films. Yeah. 
what uh, do you would you say to to young kids that are starting out uh, in film or or art um, and pursuing it? What would you say to young kids um, that are getting their start today? Um, just uh, to do it without any any fear or any hesitation. I think when you're young, you don't really have much to lose. Like you're just in that stage of exploring, trying to find your artistic uh, touch. And also, you know, you're trying to discover who you like to work with, how you like to work, how things even function, even if that's like a camera. Um, so be curious and there's not a lot at stake. So allow yourself to fail, allow yourself to try different things and step outside of the box. I want to um, sort of end on Nanitic um, and talk about your latest project and the journey, the inspiration, all of it, you know, the making of it, uh, if you can share uh, the beginnings of, of that uh, short film. Sure. Um, so there's a couple of stories from my childhood that I've melded together for Nanitic. Um, one of them was um, my, my paternal grandmother when she was dying um, she had cancer and she was in the hospital. She lost all her hair. Um, she was like literally just white in the bag of bones. And I was five at the time. And the last time I visited her in the hospital, um, she knew that it was the last time that she would see her grandchildren. And she just wanted to touch our hands. So my sister went up to her bedside and she touched her hands. And then when it came to me, I was so scared. I didn't recognize my grandmother that I didn't leave the door frame. And my dad was trying to pull me over to her because he wants his mother to, mm -hmm. you know, have this experience for the last time. And um, she saw how terrified I was and um, that I was on the brink of tears. So she just said, you know, just leave her. And, and I never got to touch my grandmother's hands for that last time. And that was something that I regretted a lot. And something that I questioned, um, because when, when someone is dying, when someone is not that person you recognize before, uh, before, especially as a kid, like, um, why does that fear affect you so vividly? Um, what were the things that I didn't understand as a kid um, that brought me to that moment? And and how would I would have how would I have wanted that situation to turn out um, for this not to have turned into a regret? Um, and then another one is um, my a story of my aunt. Um, my aunt she was one of the main caregivers for my grandmother, and when my grandmother died, I felt like her life had really shifted because. She um, didn't have kids, she didn't have her family. So her life very much revolved around um, being a caregiver and keeping this woman alive. Um, and so this huge shift in my family happened and there's a bunch of things that I may, might not have time to explain, but um, when the pandemic hit, I noticed that everyone's life had changed around us. We weren't going to work anymore. We um had you know different routines but her routine stayed very similar because she had continued to become sheltered to, to be sheltered and to 
continue her mundane, I guess, um, routine. And so that made me think back as well to that time of when my grandmother was dying and, um, and the thing that I didn't recognize when I was just um, a kid and playing around my dying grandmother and, you know, still stealing the candy from her closet and, and not thinking any deeper than my immediate satisfaction and my experiences at the time as a kid. Um, so I, I wanted to like combine these two memories amongst mm. others to explore these periods in my life where um, I felt like that childhood naivety um, is, is something that clouds your judgment over um, the actual situation that's going on. Now, where does the title come into play with the two stories? Yes. So Nanetic is um, a second generation worker ant. So it's uh, no, the first generation. So it's the, so there's a queen ant and it's the first brood of worker ants. Um, <clears throat> the worker ants are generally smaller than the next generation because they sacrifice a lot of their energy and their food to raise the next generation and to keep the queen ant alive and to take care of her. Um, and when I read about the nanitics, it really reminded me of my aunt's situation and, and not just her, but a lot of situations with immigrant um, parents and how, you know, as children, we're not really aware of all the sacrifices that they do to, um, to keep the next generation and to give them the opportunities that they have. Um, I think of my mom, for instance, who wasn't able to reobtain an education. I think of the sacrifices that my dad made working factory jobs. And, um, and it was thanks to the nanetics that the next generation are a lot bigger and healthier and can have the colony thrive um, seamlessly. Um, so that was one of the anecdotes that I wanted to play on, but then also this idea of the queen ant and um, this idea that the colony is only a colony and survives when the queen ant is alive. And when the queen ant dies, the colony dies with it as well. So I um, thought of this moment when, you know, my, all my grandparents died. So by the time I was, I think, 16, all of my grandparents from both of my families had um, passed away. And that shift when the grandparents die is a huge shift in the family dynamic yeah. because, you know, your family doesn't gather so often anymore. Your parents don't see their siblings and you kind of like start to live your own life. And in a way, you know, that colony in your family dies as well. And, and so goes the, um, the culture because the grandparents were the one that held the, the key to what I think like the experience of what it felt like to be fully Vietnamese, to live through the war, to bring that over to Canada and, you know, uh, give that to their kids um, and the stories that might die with them. And so I felt like um, the ant colony was a very interesting metaphor to play for this moment, not only culturally, but also um, identity wise in terms of um, you know, playing on uh, 
the grandmother as the queen aunt and the auntie as the nanadic and trying the little girl as potentially the second generation. I'm mesmerized as you're telling me the details here because I am thinking about my par grandparents passing and, you know, and how it's affected and shifted our family dynamics. We don't get together at all anymore. Um, or, or maybe once every two years since she's passed. And I'm mesmerized because uh, I think about really the, the big metaphorical um, application to Ninitics as it relates to a lot of different uh, things in our culture. And, um, you know, just to be able to weave all of that and the meaning and the depth and to show it in the colors and the lighting, um, I have such an appreciation for the work that, that you do um, and for Nanitics. Um, I got, you know, thank you for, for allowing me to, to take a peek at it. And I am um, excited to see the next uh, decade or two of the work that you put out. Thank you. Yeah. It was wonderful to um, spend time with you today, and I hope that uh, we can get back um, when you have your next project or um, the next time you um, have anything coming out. Please uh, don't uh, hesitate to, to reach out. Yeah, give me a year. <laughs> Stay tuned. Wonderful. Well, thank you, uh, Carol, and uh, we will be talking soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.